0: Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording.
1: Last week our proverb instructed us regarding the wise man who guards his mouth and tongue, how he keeps his soul from troubles. And today's proverb is kind of the opposite. Our proverb today for the cleansing, for God's forgiveness, they call the confession is is Proverbs 21, verse 24. A proud and haughty man scoffer is his name, he acts with arrogant pride. Pride and arrogance are the opposite of humility, obviously. But what should be obvious to believers is how they are the opposite of wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But what that means, or an excellent interpretation of this, is that the beginning of wisdom is humility. Our text this morning gives us the description of a fool. He's a scoffer. His words betray his proud heart. He mocks and he makes fun. He considers himself better than others. He despises them. And in his pride, he belittles them. And in doing so, he acts arrogantly. Or as the text says, he acts with arrogant pride. The Hebrew word for arrogance here also has the meaning of fury or anger. His pride is furious. In other words, his words are not measured. And his temper flares. He certainly does not guard his mouth and tongue, as the previous proverb recommended. Such pompous arrogance does not submit itself to God, nor to men, and its end is destruction. God sits in heaven and laughs at the raging of his enemies, and in the end all will be brought face to face with their maker, and when that happens, words will cease, pride will fall, and God will judge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So do not be proud, nor be a scoffer. Instead, bow your head in humility, soften your heart, and confess your sins before God, and then close your mouth and hear what he says so that you may find life and find it abundantly. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel as we confess our sins. Is Acts 18, verses 18 to 23. So Paul still remained a good while. He was in Corinth. And then he took leave of the brethren and sailed for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Cenchrea, for he had taken a vow. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent, but took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church he went down to Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. These events uh, happened in the year A.D. 53. Uh, Paul concludes his his ministry in Corinth. He'd been there for a year and a half and God had blessed him there with safety and with friends and with a successful ministry. But today we read how he left Corinth with Priscilla and Aquila, how he cut his hair, verse 18, and he went through Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, verses 19 to 21. And then he he goes down to Antioch and uh, then he gets right back to it, discipling the churches and embarking on his third missionary journey. That's that last little part where he's going off to. Uh, um, uh, after he spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. Now, there's a lot going on here. Uh, Paul's he's traveling huge distances. Um and, and there's some things that are going on here that don't really make a lot of sense to us from, from our modern context, our, our culture. Um, as, as Americans, at, at first glance, we read through this and we're like, what is going on here? And at first, we have the weirdness of the vow and the haircut. Like, what is that all about? And then. Then you have Paul's uncharacteristic brevity, when he, get, he, he, he he travels across the Aegean Sea, and he goes from Corinth to Ephesus, um, and so he's, he's heading east, and, he, and Ephesus is the major city, Corinth is the major city in Greece, Ephesus is the major city in Asia Minor, it's a, it's a port city, a huge city, and this is the first time Paul goes there, and he lands, and then uh He he goes and he he brings Priscilla and Aquila with him, but he leaves them there and he goes to the synagogue and he he brings the gospel. He starts reasoning with the Jews. And when the Jews ask him to stay and explain the gospel to them, he says, I can't. I got to go. By all means, I must go to Jerusalem. That's uncharacteristic of Paul. His normal normal practice is to go and preach the gospel until he's kicked out. But that's, that's not what he's doing here. Um, he's got to go to, to Jerusalem for the feast. And the feast he's talking about there is the, the Pentecost, the Feast of Pentecost, which is gloriously this Sunday is, is Pentecost Sunday. So Paul's on his way to make it to Pentecost because he's got to go to that feast for some reason. And, and we can't... Um, and then finally, Luke does an incredible flyby of his travel. So like he goes from Corinth, with major city, a year and a half there, and we just spent a couple of weeks talking about his ministry there. He stops by for a brief visit in Ephesus, and then he's, he gets on a boat. And he travels all the way down to the, to the eastern edge of the Mediterranean at Caesarea, and then he went up and he greeted the church. And with that going up, that's the only reference we have to Jerusalem. There, he doesn't even say I'm, he went up to Jerusalem. Luke just says he went up and greeted the church. And then that, but that's how they always talked about going to Jerusalem, is you go up from Caesarea, you go up from Antioch to Jerusalem. So Paul goes up, and then he goes and he greets the church, and then he goes down to Antioch, stays there for a little bit. And then he he, he travels through the regions of Galatia and Phrygia in order, meaning that he, he, he goes from one to the next, which is his first missionary journey. He's re. re And taking his steps through that whole first missionary journey, going north up into uh, Galatia, which is the, the central Turkey area, and then Phrygia, which is a little bit farther west of there. And he's on his way back to Ephesus. But Luke tells us all of this in the space of two very short verses. And it's like he's been, and so far when he talks about Paul's travels, he's pretty—he gets into what he's doing as he's going. But here it's just like bam, bam, bam. So for some reason, for Luke, all we need to know is Paul did it, and he was strengthening the disciples there, and that's important because Paul doesn't just go plant churches and then forget about the people that he—he's—he's he's ministered to. I mean, when he went to Thessalonica and then he goes down to Corinth, he writes the books of First and Second Thessalonians. To the to, to, to the to the Thessalonians because he cares about them. Or on the, the second missionary journey started by Paul and Barnabas talking about, hey, we should go check on the churches that we planted and let's go disciple them. Let's just see how they're doing. And so he's just now completed his second missionary journey and as soon as he lands back in Antioch, in Antioch, he spends some time there and he embarks right away on his third missionary journey. Um, now, there's weird things going on, though, and we're going to get into that, uh, but this Sunday is a good Sunday for us to spend some time pondering the mysteries of the text, because today is Pentecost Sunday, and on Pentecost Sunday, we celebrate the coming of the Holy Ghost upon the disciples in Jerusalem. That's at, back at the beginning of that. Remember, that's what started this whole saga. saga anyways. That's what got us where we are at. And the challenge of this, the pondering of the mystery, is that the Holy Spirit is a spirit and we can't see him and we can't understand him, but we can see his power and we can see his fruit. The the, the scriptures describe the work of the Holy Spirit with various metaphors. They say the Holy Spirit's like this or he's like that. But he's like the wind, which we can't see where it comes from or where it goes. But we can hear it and we can feel it and we can see its effect on the things that it touches. Another thing the Holy Spirit is like, he's like water, if Jesus says, come to me, you who thirst, and I will give you springs of living water. He's, the Holy Spirit is poured out. He, he satisfies our longings and our thirst, and, and he refreshes our souls. He fills us with what we need, what we desire, what we long for. And he, what he does is he fills us with our God. And the Holy Spirit, he's like fire. Remember at Pentecost the tongues of fire on the on the, on the heads of the uh, disciples, and in this the Holy Spirit signifies holiness. The Holy Spirit is like fire, and He He makes things holy. Remember the burning bush. Moses comes out of the the wilderness and he sees a bush that's burning but not burning up. He's like, "What is this? I must check this out." And he comes and checks it out and. The voice of the Spirit, God, comes out of the bush and says, Stop and take off your sandals, for the ground where you're standing is holy ground. The pillar of fire signifying the presence of God, leading the Israelites out of Egypt. Resting over the, over the, over the, the, the tabernacle in the wilderness. The sacrificial fires, which were holy to God. Remember, Nadab and Abihu tried to bring strange fire into the temple, and God struck them dead. God is holy, and His Spirit sanctifies. His Spirit is holy. And He sets apart those whom he comes in contact with. Those he sets apart those upon whom he settles and rests. And, and, he, and, he, and he sets them apart specifically for God's service. He makes them holy. Now what we're going to find out about our text is that a lot of the weirdness comes into focus when we recognize how Paul's vow fits in the context. The Paul's vow, like the Holy Spirit, peculiarly sets Paul apart for God's service. Now, let's consider what uh, what, what the context is of Paul's Corinthian vow. Now first, we need to consider the culture. Our text this morning refers to Paul cutting his hair, and it relates to it, it relates the fact he says. And Paul cut his hair at Concrea for he had taken a vow. Because he had taken a vow. So what we know from the text is that Paul cut his hair and it was related to a vow he had taken. So what what does that mean and where does that come from? Paul is a Jew and he believed in the, the, the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. And when we look at vows in the scripture... There's one particular vow or type of vow that specifically talks about cutting hair. And this vow is called the Nazarite vow. And we, we learn about it in Numbers chapter 6. So if you, if you have your Bibles, turn there with me. Uh, we, we read about it in Numbers chapter 6. And I'm, gonna, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but we're going to do a little bit of a flyby over what's going on here. Numbers chapter 6, I'm going to read 1st verses 1 through 8. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman Consecrates an offering To take the vow of a Nazarite To separate himself to the Lord He shall separate himself from wine And similar drink He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine Nor vinegar made from similar drink neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins all the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin all the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separated himself to the Lord he shall be holy Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make himself unclean, even for his father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. This vow is about holiness, being set apart, being separated for God, for a particular reason, for a particular purpose, to be a witness for him. And this vow actually consecrates your hair. It makes your hair holy. You have holy hair. And because you have holy hair, you cannot be around unclean things. You are set apart for God. And the fact that your hair is there, it is bearing witness to you and to everyone around you that you have been set apart for God and for his service because of your vow, the words you took, binding yourself to God's service. The Nazarite was separated unto God. And so first, he had to live differently than everybody else. No razor on his head and no alcohol, no wine. Wine was a staple food for the for for the, the entire ancient world. That's what they drank with dinner. They had a glass of wine. He couldn't have grape juice, he couldn't have any fruit of the vine, no grape products. So and we have some famous Nazarites in scripture, and there were Nazarites who were Nazarites from birth. And there were Nazarites who were Nazarites who were separated specially for a, a set time, and this, this vow that they're talking about here is for those who do it for a set time. But we know that Samson was set apart from birth to be a Nazarite, as was the prophet Samuel. Remember, Samuel was his his mom took a vow and set him apart to be a Nazarite, and the other famous Nazarite was John the Baptist. And all three of them are known for very peculiar things. But great holiness and and great and close association with the Holy Spirit. They were filled with God and they were set apart for him. And at the end of the vow, the head was shaved Because the hair was holy. And that hair was a measure of time. If, a, a, a Nazarite who took a vow for a, for a set period of time, his hair was consecrated, and he was consecrated, and that, that puts certain restrictions upon him. And, and he, he, his witness was powerful, but when his vow was fulfilled, he would shave that hair off and give it to the Lord. we read in Numbers 6, verse 13. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And then jumping down to verse 18. And then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door. This is after having given some offerings. He will shave his his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the hair from the, his consecrated head and put it on the fire which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket and one unleavened wafer and put them under the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarites may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite, who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. So, he he must... Be holy, and when his his head is consecrated, the hair is holy, and he sacrifices it to the Lord. It's a gift to God. And he must make these sacrifices at the temple, at at the tabernacle, in Jerusalem. Now, this type of vow is a very Jewish practice, and it was highly regarded among the Jewish people, the Jewish nation. They, 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 they honored those people who held this place of respect, who had taken this kind of vow, who set themselves apart for the Lord's service. They viewed them as prophets, as seers, as those who they could go to for guidance and instruction, and they were, they, they were given a calling by God. Now, in fact, it was so much so that in Acts chapter 21, which we're going to be at in a couple chapters, the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem encouraged Paul to prove his Jewishness. He was being accused of, of, of being too Gentile. He, they encouraged him to prove his Jewishness by paying for the sacrifices of four others who had taken similar vows. That would have been a very a, a, a godly thing to do, to, to support their ministry by paying for their sacrifices now this is an important point in the culture in which the gospel originally came paul was living during the transition of the covenant. there's a there's a time you know we have a, a, an old testament era an old testament period which god instituted at moses Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he, is, he, he made a covenant with his people in, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness at Sinai with Moses and gave them the law and constituted Israel, his people. His special people, his holy people set apart. And Jesus comes along and he's the fulfillment of the promises of all of the Old Testament. And so now Paul is, is a Christian proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ who's coming And he's he's got a new wine, and and, and the new wine doesn't fit in the old wineskin. And Paul's gospel is Jesus over... He's he's bigger than Judaism. And, And yet there's this time period of 40 years from the time that Jesus is resurrected from the dead until the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem where we have an overlap of the Old Testament and New Testament. An overlap of the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. A 40-year period in which the church is, is, is being born and Judaism is being judged. But a godly Jew could worship God in Jerusalem, the true God, in Jerusalem according to the Old Testament law. Now, as a Christian, Paul has jumped up and down for the freedom that comes from the Old Testament. But at the same time, we see him becoming all things to all people. Jesus brings a message of grace. On the one hand, Paul goes to Jerusalem at the Jerusalem Council, and he argues against the circumcision of the Gentiles. And then in the ne- practically on the next page, he circumcises Timothy. What is going on here? Paul's faithfulness to the Jewish customs does not come out of a desire or a need for him to perform duties which will earn him a place in heaven. That's where the Jews got it wrong. The Old Testament is very clear that it's not sacrifice. God doesn't desire sacrifice. He desires purity. He desires faithfulness. He desires a heart, a humble and a contrite heart. So Paul's faithfulness in Judaism are responses of gratitude for God's salvation, His revelation, and His provision. So Paul's vow and his keeping of it falls in line with both Judaism and first-century Christianity. In the culture of Corinth, this vow would have made Paul stick out like a sore thumb. Uh, Paul, this vow would have—he he, would—he would be a, an odd duck and more on that in a little bit. For now, I need to point out a few things from the context of our passage to explain that, what's going on here. Paul has been, uh, and, and when I say the context of our passage, I'm talking about where we're at. We're in, in, in uh, uh, Acts um, chapter 18. Uh, Paul's been on, he's, he's, he's most of the way through his second missionary journey, and he's, he's been chased out of town after town after town. He's been He's been a punching bag. He's, I mean, he's going preaching the gospel, and the Jews are after him and attacking him. And then he arrives in Corinth, which is, a, which is a huge and a wicked metropolis, and he starts out by making a fuss with the Jews, which is always what he does. And they're his primary assailants. And then he curses them. He says, your blood be upon your own heads. And he sets up shop right next door to them. Now... Um, What do you think is going on in Paul's head here? What do you think he should experience? Uh, What do you think that he should expect? I mean, he's done this before a few times, right? What happens when you go and you preach to the Jews and they reject the gospel? Persecution. Stoning. Being brought to the, the authorities. That's what Paul would expect. But... But this text kind of gives us a a sense of a scriptural equivalent for foxhole prayers. In in Psalm chapter 66, we we learn an interesting thing about vows. Uh, Psalm 66, verses 13 and 14. I will go into your house with burnt offerings. I will pay you my vows, which my lips have uttered and my mouth has spoken when I was in trouble. When I was in trouble, I cried out to you. I made a vow to you. And you delivered me, therefore I'm going to pay my vows. God honors faithfulness in dire straits. God honors faithfulness in dire straits. So now let's consider Paul in Corinth. He's in Corinth. He's attacked to the Jews. And then what do we see that happens? He has a vision. And God tells him, Paul, do not be afraid. They will not, hurt, uh, they will not hurt you, and I have many people in the city get to work. Paul has a vision, and God says, you will be saved. That's all happened right at the beginning of Paul's trip to Corinth. When, when he, he met up with, with Priscilla and Aquila, uh, Timothy and Silas come down, and then he has this vision. And then, when he he leaves Corinth at Cancria, which was just the port city for Corinth, it's just just nine miles down the road, as soon as he leaves Corinth and he's ready to get on a ship to get out of town, his vow is fulfilled so he cuts his hair, shaves his head, his consecration, his setting apart is done. God has fulfilled his part of the vow, and, and Paul has fulfilled his part of the vow. He's set himself apart, but now he's, he's left the protection of Corinth. But God has, has kept his promise to him. And, and Paul, in, out of faithfulness and faithful response, is about to fulfill his promise to God. So he cuts his hair, and, he, and, and he's on a mission to get to Jerusalem. Which is why we see his faithfulness when he—he's trying to be—he's in a hurry to get to Jerusalem. He goes to Ephesus, and on the way, he can't help himself but go to the to the Jews and, and reason with them. But they're like, "Tell us more! Tell us more!" And he's like, "I can't! I got to go to Jerusalem. Why do you have to go to Jerusalem? I have to fulfill my vow." In all this, we see Paul's response to God's promise was passionate. It was public and it was powerful. Vows are a passionate and particular thing. They set people apart. They're, they're things that you, you, you make out of your, your soul and your spirit. It's like you, set, you give something to God. It's, it's a powerful thing to do. It's passionate and and it's public. I mean, I don't know how, exactly how long in the inches his hair would have gone or, and his beard would have grown in a year and a half, but I know if I didn't cut my hair that long, it'd be pretty long. And, and so he would have been pretty shaggy. And he wouldn't have been able to eat the normal things that normal people eat, he wouldn't have been able to go to funerals. He was set apart. It was public, and it was powerful. Paul's ministry in Corinth was blessed. Richly, He witnessed to the Gentiles and he witnessed against to the Jews. But he was always proclaiming Jesus in holiness. And that brings us to the witness of the vow. Paul's vow bore witness to Paul's gratitude for God's protection. It bore witness in Corinth. To the the Jews in the synagogue, it bore witness before Galileo and before the many converts that came came to God. Corinth was a wicked city, but Paul was showing them something different, something wholesome, a different way to live. Paul's Paul's vow bore witness in Ephesus. He brought the gospel to them. He brought Priscilla and Aquila to them. But his imminent travel to Jerusalem proclaimed Paul's concern for keeping his word. It's more important for Paul to have integrity before God than to have the glory of bringing more people to Christ. That's not what God had for him there. It was more important for him to go to Jerusalem than to stay in Ephesus and preach the gospel right now. He says, I want to come back to you. I plan on coming back to you, God willing. Again, he's recognizing God's authority because God is the one who we all answer to. And finally, it bore witness in Paul's future ministry when he went to greet the church in Jerusalem, when he went to fulfill his vow and bring his consecrated hair and burn it on the sacrifice, when he returned to his home church in Antioch with a report of how much work God had done in and through him, when he went to the churches that he was strengthening and that he planted on his first missionary journey, he was bringing a message of God's faithfulness, and it was in his vow brought witness. So, what does this mean for us? Well, first, it means that God is providential and God is sovereign. When we are afraid, it's okay to pray to God and make a foxhole prayer. You know, think about soldiers in war, and they're hiding in the in the foxhole, and that there's bullets flying everywhere. God, if you get me out of this, I will whatever think of jonah in the belly of the fish think of david in the caves as saul is searching to kill him think of paul in corinth with the with the angry jews god wants us to have a vital relationship with him and he's not satisfied with complacency God is not satisfied with complacency. He wants our hearts, our emotions, our bodies, and our souls. He wants us to be alive. And sometimes that means He needs to stretch us till we cry out to Him. Till we beg for His presence. Till we we, we just yearn for His holiness and his, His salvation. But when that happens, and when we cry out to him, we find that he is there and he is good. God's message to Paul was loud and clear. Don't be afraid. You will not be hurt. And I have many people in the city get to work. But before that happens, or in grateful response to that. It's not only normal, but it's good for us to commit to him a vow for his answer. That's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. It's like Gideon setting the fleece out the night before and says, God, if you want me to do this, then make it wet and make the ground dry. And then the next night, well, OK, tonight make it dry and the ground wet. But if you, if you, if you prove this to me, then I will do your work. I will I will submit to your calling. It's, it's OK. It's good. And it should be. Something that we're, we're comfortable with. Making a vow and promising a service or a gift or an action to our Lord. So that's the first thing. God is in control and he wants us to know him individually, personally. And the second thing is God cares about hair. God cares about details. Don't make a vow and not keep it. No matter how minor it is. God is holy, and he's perfect, and he's righteous, and he's just. Don't mock him. Don't take the mundane for granted. Paul's hair probably got a little annoying after a while. Scratchy or getting in the way, or maybe he wanted some wine. You can't just give up on your vow. You're answering to a holy God uh, and an awesome God. And God expects us to worship Him as He is, and He is holy and awesome. He expects us to be faithful to keep our word, because He is faithful to keep His word. We must serve Him down to the ground, down to the nitty-gritty, because God requires passion and commitment in the nitty-gritty. Vows are important in Christian society. O's are what constitute us as a people. They define our responsibilities to one another. They are binding contracts, and they define who we are, and we find our identity in our words, in our our people, in who we are. And we know this because we take vows when? At baptism. We take membership vows when we join a body, when we join a church. We take marriage vows when we become one with a spouse. Immigrants take citizenship oaths when they join a country, a nation. These oaths and these vows are promises made to God and our neighbor, which make us culpable or guilty if we default on our word. And this is what the scriptures say about vows, and they're very clear on this. Numbers 30, verse 2. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, verses 21 to 23. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay to pay it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and it would be sin to you. But if you abstain from vowing, it should not be sin to you. That which is gone from your lips, you shall keep and perform, for you voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Ecclesiastes 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it. He has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. In Proverbs 30, it is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. The Scripture doesn't waffle on this. The scripture is not okay with us waffling on our word man's word should be solid and it should be good, like his handshake should be that way. Unfortunately, we live in a society which more and more loves to deny that. Our culture loves to live in the shadow lands and the gray areas. It's the devil's in the details. you got to read the fine print. There's lots of nuance the result is is that we're suffering judgment for this. You look at the divorce rate in our culture. That's what happens when you bring that kind of an attitude into the vows of marriage. You don't keep your word. And marriages break. It happens economically. housing defaults in the, the housing bubble and people making business deals and reneging on them or uh, filing bankruptcy and walking away from their debts. and they, they, Financially, people do not keep their word. Broken relationships, broken churches. People, people take vows and then they don't keep them. And it does damage to them and to those around them. Our government, our politicians swear to uphold the Constitution, and then they make a mockery of it. All of this in our culture is a lie about our God and who he is and what he is like. He's not like that. He's holy and he's righteous and he's just, and he keeps his word. All of this points to a huge lack of integrity. But Christianity is all about integrity. It's about the truth. It's about witness. And what the witness is, is the truth. We point to God. We point to Jesus Christ. And Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Words are small things, but they are powerful and they are binding upon us. Back in Acts chapter 5, we read about Sapphira and Ananias. Ananias and Sapphira, they lied to the Holy Spirit, and God struck them dead. And our culture is on track to incur this sort of retribution. Nevertheless, we should not fear. God could save Paul in Corinth, which was a wicked city, and he could save us here and now. And now hear these compelling words from Isaiah chapter 45. This is interesting. And this is God taking a vow to us. He's speaking about the vows that we will take to Him. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. And Paul reiterates this in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, Every knee shall bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So let us take our oaths of service to God seriously. When we are baptized, when we partake in the Lord's Supper, what we're doing is we are bowing our knee and we're confessing with our mouths that Jesus is Lord over heaven and earth. We're taking oaths of fealty. Think of the feudal system. A king and his lord. Or a lord and his knight. We are are bowing on the knee to serve him. To offer ourselves up to him. Let us take those words seriously. Let us bow our knee in subservience. And do what our words call us to. Let us go forth and bear him witness. Called to the glory of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Let's
0: pray.
1: Words are powerful because our God is powerful. He has sent His Word, our Lord Jesus Christ, revealing Himself in the word he created the heavens and the earth by words by the word he has redeemed us from sin recreate, recreating us into a new and spiritual life and by the spirit of his word he has applied his word to our particular souls we are individually each and every one of us set apart we where we are made holy and prepared to perform his will By His grace. It is a mystery, but by the preaching of the word, the gospel goes out, and it does not return to God void. He calls us to proclaim Him and to be His body. And He constitutes us every week into His word, His message to the world, here at this table. Here we receive Him. Here we are joined to Him. And here we proclaim our faith to the world by our participation in him. Take, eat, believe, and rejoice that God has so graciously poured himself out on you and drawn you to him. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray.
0: Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWingle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.